guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? It's Halloween. Well, it's not today, but it is if you're listening to this on Tuesday. And <laughs> if you just have a cold, dark heart, then it's always Halloween. Halloween oh, can be every that's day. That's the your spirit. Heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mandy, how are you? How I'm are doing things? well, Melissa. How are you? Honestly, never better. Doing really, really good. Having a great week. Um, looking at forward to next week. Next week is actually a very good or the week we're recording this, we have a lot of really good things going on yes. and exciting things. Very busy, and but very exciting. Exactly. Excited to share about those things. So uh, just looking forward to that uh, next week. Yeah. And we're marching into November, which here you is go. Very exciting. I love it. I love it. I feel like I have like such a, a polar, you know, swing when it comes to how I feel about time passing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I know. Right now I'm feeling very good about it. I feel great going into November. I'm excited to get to Thanksgiving and eat and celebrate. My birthday is coming up. I feel like we're now finally getting into the time that I actually really love. So I am happy. Yes. <laughs> good. I have it in my calendar. I already have your gifts, but I had like in my calendar How? already remind, no 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 like to remind myself like on your birthday on the calendar I started doing that like when you come up with an idea for something or like Christmas I started putting it in my calendar so then I'll look at it brilliant right because I forget all the time I'm like I had a great thing for this person so anyway I'm very you're the first person I've done it for and oh. I'm very excited so if you don't like it don't tell me because oh, well, I'm very I've excited literally thought too. about it for months yeah yeah <laughs> Awesome. So this week, I am really excited about the story. It's not exactly Halloween themed, but I feel like it is kind of Halloween-esque. Can I, say I was shocked. I was Halloween adjacent. And yes. you'll see why. Yes. Yes. And it is a story that I have never heard before. Um, so this is actually one that Haley suggested that we do. And she, of course, researched the story for us as usual. But I'm super excited to talk about it because... It is a little spooky. On September 14, 1977, 36-year-old Addison Verrill was discovered dead in his apartment after suffering a severe beating and fatal stabbing. The apartment showed signs of a struggle and had been ransacked, leading investigators to initially believe that Addison's death was a result of a failed robbery attempt. It was assumed, based on this crime scene, that the perpetrator had been searching for cash or valuable items. It was learned that the last known sighting of Addison was at approximately 6 a.m. on that same morning when he left the mineshaft, which was an after-hours gay bar. The police theorized that he may have encountered someone either at the bar or on his way home who later committed the murder during the course of an attempted robbery. Surprisingly, only one news outlet actually reported on Addison's death, even though he was really well-known in both the film and the gay communities. Addison had been a reporter for Variety, and for 10 years, he covered the underground film scene, which led to him knowing a lot of actors and producers. Arthur Bell, who was a fellow journalist, also highly celebrated, who wrote for The Village Voice, described Addison as being a top-notch reporter and said that his writing was often very tongue-in-cheek. Arthur felt like there was more to Addison's murder, and he believed that his friend deserved to have a story told. So he wrote a long article in The Village Voice called There's Nothing Gay About Murder to really get people's attention. In this article, he shared information that the police hadn't talked about before, 
And that article was used as one of the main sources for this week's episode and, of course, will be linked in the show notes. In his article, Arthur said that it just didn't make sense for Addison's murder to be motivated by a robbery because there was no sign that someone broke into Addison's apartment. Also, valuable things like his TV and tape recorder had been left behind, and Addison wasn't known for really keeping much money at home. Arthur also noticed that there were empty beer cans and half-full glasses of liquor in the apartment. And this all made him think that someone Addison knew probably came to his apartment and that it wasn't just a random break-in. Arthur also pointed out that not very many media outlets were covering the deaths of gay men in New York. He said that about four gay men were killed every year in the Greenwich Village area, but these cases rarely made the news. Addison Verrill Jr. was born in New Haven, Connecticut in 1941 to his parents Addison Sr. and Helen. Addison attended Princeton University, and he graduated in 1963. His senior thesis focused on group theater as artistic failure, which all words I know don't know what they mean together. The guy was clearly smarter than I am. So following his studies, he dedicated three years of his life to the Peace Corps in Africa. According to the Village Voice, Addison was a frequenter of gay clubs where he was very popular. He was known for his wisdom and was often approached by people seeking to just engage in conversation or to hear his insights and gossip. Unfortunately, there's really limited information that has been made public about Addison's life before his murder, so we don't know as much about him as we wish we did. The perception and treatment of the LGBTQ plus community in New York, as in many parts of the world, has evolved significantly from the 1970s to today. While it's important to note that there is still work to be done in terms of achieving full equality and acceptance, there have been substantial changes in attitudes and legal rights for the LGBTQ plus community since the time this story took place. According to Inside Edition, in the 1970s, the LGBTQ plus community in New York was actively advocating for and struggling to obtain equal rights and the freedom to lead open lives free from discrimination. Columnist Michael Musto said this era marked a period of sexual liberation, particularly for gay men. After the pivotal 1969 Stonewall Rebellion, which was a significant moment in the modern gay rights movement, there was a notable increase in freedom and visibility within the gay community. This was before the emergence of AIDS in the early 80s. Within the city of New York, safe spaces like LGBTQ plus bars, nightclubs, and cafes started to become available, allowing individuals to express themselves in public without fear. Nevertheless, it's crucial to recognize that New York City still had instances of violent homophobia during this period, and the level of comfort experienced by the residents there really varied greatly. While it was far from perfect, it represented progress compared to the conditions before the Stonewall Rebellion. Tragically, in 1977, a significant and disturbing series of murders began in the city. Over a two-year span, the dismembered remains of six men were discovered in bags in the Hudson River. These bags bore the insignia of NYU Medical Center's Neuropsychiatric Unit, and in all six cases, medical examiners noted that the way the cuts were inflicted suggested that the person responsible had either butchery skills or medical knowledge. These murders were labeled as the bag murders, and also they were known as the cuppy murders, cuppy being C-U-P-P-I and standing for Circumstances Unknown Pending Police Investigation. Melissa, have you ever heard of that 
particular yes. case. When I read this in the notes, <laughs> but before <laughs> that, no, I hadn't. It's brand new to me. I hadn't either. Um, and I feel like I get confused because there's been a couple of New York City like serial killer kind of cases. And so this right. is one that maybe if I have heard before, I ha- didn't really take a lot of notice to until this case. So I definitely yeah. want to go kind of down the rabbit hole on this case as well. Right. So while the identities of those six victims remain unknown, investigators were able to trace their clothing back to shops in the Greenwich Village that were known for catering to the gay community. And this led the police to theorize that all of these victims were gay men. Unfortunately, these murders received minimal media coverage, which means that there is actually very little information available on their stories. It was in September of 1977 that 36-year-old Addison Verrill was found murdered in his Greenwich Village apartment. At the time, Addison hadn't fully disclosed his sexual orientation to all of his friends and family, but many in the gay community were aware of it. The murders, including Addison's, led to a heightened anxiety within the LGBTQ community. Michael Musto told Inside Edition that these incidents were really a stark reminder that LGBTQ plus individuals still faced risks in their daily lives. Michael noted that it became somewhat daunting for gay men to engage with potential partners because now they had to start cautiously gauging the individuals that they were meeting in bars. And we have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I recently did a closet purge and clean out and it was not fun. But what I did realize is that I wanted to spend some time adding more capsule pieces that can really just go with anything. When I heard about Quince, I knew I'd come to the right place. They have items for the whole family, including activewear, sweaters, and so much more. My favorite find so far has been the Ultraform high-rise leggings. I practically live my entire life in leggings and I can be pretty picky about the way they feel and fit. These leggings from Quince feel like butter, and the best part is they're a more affordable option than some of the other high-priced athletic wear brands out there. Quince has amazing high-quality items, but with prices that real people can actually afford. For example, their 100% Mongolian cashmere sweater starts at just $50 for cashmere. Cashmere is normally so expensive, I actually don't even look in cashmere's direction. But with Quince prices, I not only looked in cashmere's direction, I stared longingly, and then I added it to my cart. And if you're wondering how Quince can have such great prices for normally expensive items, it's because they partner directly with top factories, which cuts out the middleman, and so the great prices go directly to you. And if you're worried lower prices means questionable factories, no need to worry. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with their premium fabrics and finishes, so you can not only look good, but feel good about your purchases. Get high-quality essentials at affordable prices with Quince. Go to quince.com slash moms for free shipping and 365-day returns on your order. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash moms to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash moms. Pumpkin spice lattes, fresh-picked apples, terrible B.O.? Oh my. Even Florida isn't as hot in the fall, but that doesn't mean body odor is gone during the cooler months. And that's why Lumi Whole Body Deodorant is a perfect fall companion for pits, privates, and beyond. 
Lumi is the perfect all-in-one deodorant, and that's because it's designed to be used anywhere on your body and safely. It's actually formulated and powered by mandelic acid to stop odor before it ever starts, making it more of a pre-odorant. Lumi was created by an OBGYN that saw firsthand how BO was being not only misdiagnosed, but also mistreated. I'm really obsessed with Lumi and love all their products, including their regular old deodorant stick, but make sure to check out their wipes. I love them because they're discreet. They can go in my bag for any of those times that I'm feeling less than a little fresh, especially in Florida, where I might think a sweater is a good idea in the morning, but by lunchtime, I'm sweating all over the place. Lumi is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and paraben-free. Plus, it's pH balanced for safe use even below the belt. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code MOMS at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code MOMS. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were discussing a little about Addison Verrill and sort of what the community was in New York City at the time of his murder. Eight days after Addison was found murdered in his apartment, the Village Voice news desk received two calls from someone claiming to be Addison's killer. The caller said that the article Arthur Bell wrote about Addison was quote unquote wonderful, but it seemed as though Arthur had made a mistake when he called the killer a psycho when that wasn't true, which... (laughs) is a wild thing for that to be your one point in the whole story. Like, that's the word you got wrong. So the caller tells him, you know, I want to speak to Arthur myself and jokes that Arthur could use the interview to write a book and call it, quote, I talked to a killer, end quote, which I'm pretty sure there's already a Netflix documentary. So this was (laughs) 50 years earlier. So the person handling the calls promised to reach out to Arthur and was able to arrange the conversation. 10 minutes later, the caller contacted Arthur. So during this call, he stated, quote, I like your story and your writing, but I'm not a psychopath, end quote. And when Arthur inquired about the caller's identity, he admitted to being Addison's murderer. He declined to provide his name, but disclosed that he was gay, in need of money, and struggling with alcoholism. However, he again asserted that he was not a psychopath. So they discussed what happened in the early morning hours of September 14th, and the alleged killer explained that he'd been at a gay bar on Christopher Street called Badlands, despite the fact that he had been sober at this point for three months. Addison, who was also at the bar that night, offered to buy him a beer, and the two ended up hanging out all night, drinking and doing various drugs. At about 3 a.m., the two of them left and went to the Mineshaft, which was an after-hours bar. At Mineshaft, it became clear that Addison was quite popular, which made the mystery caller want to go home with him that much more. Despite Addison having a commitment early the next morning, he agreed to have the man over and they took a taxi to his studio apartment where they drank more alcohol, used cocaine, and eventually had sex around 7.30 a.m. However, the caller said the sex wasn't really what he was hoping for. He was actually looking for something more than just a physical encounter, and he wanted this relationship to evolve into a friendship and maybe eventually a marriage. He said Addison did not seem to reciprocate that feeling, and that led to him feeling rejected. 
The caller stated that in the heat of the moment, due to his frustration over this disappointing sexual encounter, he snapped and had a violent outburst in which he hit Addison with a frying pan and fatally stabbed him in the chest. Afterwards, the caller said he ransacked the apartment, but he only made off with $51 in cash, Addison's passport, a credit card, and some of his clothing. He said he used the cash to buy more alcohol, which he drank so that he could stay intoxicated all throughout the following day. The caller said that he was about the same age as Addison, but he was a little shorter, a little thinner, and he added in that he was in better physical shape. He mentioned an earlier interest in dance and the arts, and he revealed that he had a background in movies and television. He claimed to have a father who was an orchestra leader, a wife in Berlin who did not fully understand his homosexuality, and a 14-year-old son. So Arthur Bell speculated that the caller's confession might be an attempt to simply get media attention. It was later discovered that many of the caller's claims about himself were actually false, but the admission regarding the murder ended up being true. The caller repeatedly expressed a desire to atone for his actions, but he was reluctant to simply turn himself in. He said he feared losing his professional license, and he kept referring to what he did as a practice, but he wouldn't say what type of practice he was involved in. He said he couldn't tell him because then he would know, I guess who he was. This is so wild that you're like, I feel so bad that I've done this. I've taken somebody's life. I'm going to call a news reporter who wrote an article for what reason other than to have them write more information, right? Because and it's just like a game, right? Like I'm going to totally. give you all these hints about who I could be um, mm-hmm. and, and see if you can figure it out. You know, it's kind of like, like you said, why go to this level and call someone and then not just go all the way and say who you are? Nine one one's only three numbers. Like right. that would have been the easier thing to do, but you clearly you don't want to turn you don't feel right. that bad. You're not trying yeah. to turn yourself in. Totally agree. So after the call with this unidentified individual, Arthur immediately reported the conversation to the police and he gave them a detailed account of what was said. The police actually found that the caller had knowledge of specific details of the crime, such as the fact that a credit card was stolen, and there were certain details that hadn't been publicly disclosed. So it kind of reinforced the suspicion that the caller might indeed be the killer. In an effort to ensure Arthur Bell's safety, the police implemented protective measures. A patrol car periodically passed by his apartment, and emergency contact numbers were provided to him. And Arthur also had a friend stay the night so that he could avoid being alone just in case this mystery caller wanted to, I guess, come and get revenge because now he's involved the police. Yeah. Well, I don't blame him. I'm glad they did that, for goodness sakes. Yeah. So on the same night, around 1130 p.m., Arthur received another phone call. This time, it's not from the killer. It's from a man named Richard who claimed he knew who had killed Addison Barrow. According to Richard, he had met the killer at St. Vincent's Hospital in July, where the man sought help for alcohol dependency. He described the killer as an unemployed x-ray technician, which made sense considering the alleged murderer spoke of concerns about his professional future and his quote-unquote practice. Richard further explained that the killer had called him the morning after the murder and confessed what he'd done because he said he needed to share it with someone else who could relate. Richard said he had already told the police about this by the time he calls Arthur. The killer had referred to himself as Paul Bateson in the call with Arthur Bell, but Richard believed that this was an alias. 
He explained, quote, Bates' son, son of Bates. Norman Bates was Tony Perkins' name in Psycho. Get it? I know that Paul used other names. Johnny Johnson is one, end quote. So as soon as Arthur got off the phone with Richard, he reported this call to the police who had already heard from Richard, as we said before, and had even looked into the name Paul Bateson, which actually turned out to be his real name, but initially they didn't consider him a strong suspect due to his lack of a criminal record. The police brought Richard in for questioning, but released him after a few hours. Then they went to Paul's apartment where they found him intoxicated. When they asked if Paul knew why they were there, he pointed to a copy of Arthur Bell's There's Nothing Gay About Murder article. Paul was taken to the police station where he provided a full confession that matched his previous accounts and aligned with the evidence collected at the crime scene. He also led the police to Addison's missing passport and credit card. So in the wake of Paul's confession, Arthur Bell wanted to find out more about exactly who he was. So he conducted his own investigation into Paul's background. Arthur learned that Paul was born in 1940 in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. He was the son of a metallurgist. And so if you're like, what the heck is that? That is someone who is a material scientist that specializes in metals like steel, aluminum, iron, and copper, which obviously makes sense after you hear it, but I have never heard of that being called No, a metallurgist. I, I would think it was an allergy doctor for people. Oh, I'm allergic to nickel. Right? That's That's what I would would see. That would make sense. (laughs) That's what I would think too. So Paul's history with alcoholism had started during his time stationed in Germany while he was serving in the army. Boredom and limited activities led to drinking as a pastime. But after Paul left the military, he did stop drinking for a brief period of time. He actually returned home to Lansdale, Pennsylvania. In October of 1964, Paul moved to New York, where he met and fell in love with a man who was involved in the music scene, and the two of them ended up being in a relationship for nine years, and they were known to frequent the gay bars around the city, which meant that by that time, Paul was back to drinking pretty heavily again. During the early 1970s, Paul was the chief neuro x-ray technologist at NYU Medical Center. He was well-regarded by his colleagues for his excellent bedside manner, patient care, and exceptional skills. He was known for being a reliable and highly proficient professional in the field. Dr. Barton Lane said, quote, He was very good at what he did, particularly in the realm of neuroradiology technology. His knowledge greatly benefited the medical community, and he was a valuable source of information in the field. In late 1972, about five years before Addison's murder— The most insane and bizarre thing ever happened when Paul Bateson was randomly recruited to be in the infamous horror movie, The Exorcist. And the way this came about is honestly so unbelievable. Melissa, I literally wouldn't believe it if this was not a verified true story. Oh my gosh. So Melissa, tell us how this guy, Paul Bateson, ended up in what is considered to be one of the scariest movies of all time. Can't wait to tell you because this really <laughs> blew my mind. So in late 1972, William Friedkin, who was the director of the original Exorcist movie, actually visited NYU Medical Center as part of his research for the film. So his purpose was to scout locations for shooting and to find potential extras. During his visit to the hospital, William had the opportunity to witness a cerebral angiography procedure. There were no HIPAA regulations in the 70s, so people could observe medical procedures more easily. Isn't that wild? I watched a knee replacement. Yeah. 
same idea, right? You can just watch it. You have to fill out paperwork and you just stand there. Well, it sounds like he didn't even have to do that. <laughs> True. I, I do think it was probably a little more loosey-goosey, but I felt like I should have gone through some more hoops before yeah. I watched, <laughs> watched it myself. So during the procedure that William was watching, the needle punctured the artery and a jet of blood began shooting out. William was impressed by this really striking visual of blood spraying everywhere, and he decided to incorporate it into the Exorcist movie. <laughs> he was also really impressed by the medical team that was conducting the procedure, which included Paul Bateson, as well as his supervisor, Dr. Barton Lane. So he actually extended an offer to both of them to play themselves in the movie. I can't. I can't take any of this. So Unreal. <laughs> Unreal. So Paul and a group of his colleagues agreed to participate, and in early 1973, William and his film crew returned to NYU Medical Center and reserved an entire section of the radiology department for two consecutive weekends to shoot the scene. So the scene in the film featured the character 12-year-old Reagan McNeil, portrayed by Linda Blair, undergoing the angiography procedure. Dr. Barton Lane explained that apart from the actors, everyone involved in the scene were experts in their respective fields because the goal was to create a very realistic portrayal. Despite having limited on-screen time, Paul Bateson had a few lines of dialogue in the film and played a notable role in comforting a nervous Reagan. I've never seen this movie, but I looked at this clip. It's not as graphic as it sounds whenever you describe it. I mean, it is like it is exactly what it says, but... I don't know why I was picturing like more gore and like more blood, but it really wasn't that bad. I didn't think it was like terrible. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was plenty for me. I was like, okay, this is enough. But no, I I agree with what you're saying. For everyone to be like, that's the worst movie in the whole film. I was like, huh, okay, well, maybe I could watch The Exorcist. I could. I could. Yeah. Okay. I don't know, though, if you couldn't. Like, honestly, I – the other night – Full disclosure, for some somehow, being like the Halloween scary movie loving person I am, I have ne- mm-hmm. had never seen The Exorcist until I decided oh. to watch it the other night because after I finished working on this story, I was like, well, I need to watch it now so I can go and Obviously. see this guy, Paul Bateson, in the movie. And that's really what I was looking for. I wanted to make sure I got that scene. I ended up falling asleep before the end of the movie, but honestly, it was kind of slow. Like in the beginning, it wasn't very – I don't know. It wasn't hmm. very exciting. So – Anyway, moving right along. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So in 1973, when The Exorcist premiered in theaters, newspapers extensively covered the extreme reactions that the audience had by these, you know, to these intense scenes that were in the movie. They, viewers had responses that ranged from vomiting and fainting to panic attacks and fleeing from the theater. Again, after watching this movie this week, I don't really get it. Like, I don't, I feel like it wasn't quite that scary. Okay, but context, yeah, that's quite a bit. That actually should be its own movie, just videotaping (laughs) the people doing it. But think 50 years ago, a horror movie like this, yes, it would be terrifying. When you think back to like when the first movies came out and there was like the the original film was seeing like a train, like that was like the first movie that was shown or whatever. And they really thought a train was coming towards them. They were scared, yeah. (laughs) They were really scared. So I can see like maybe, yeah. Maybe that would be right. Yeah, that's that's true. So amid all the sensational moments in the movie involving demonic possession, 
the depiction of that's that, where you get me. Yeah. So the depiction of that cerebral angiography procedure earned a spot as one of the movie's most unsettling scenes. And this particular scene was marked by its disturbing realism and this, you know, graphic portrayal of the procedure and its capacity to evoke strong emotional responses. To this day, doctors at NYU Medical Center credit this angiogram scene as being one of the most authentic depictions of a medical procedure in film, which is like totally wild. I did not look it up, but I am like curious to see if like this has been done before where they use like actual doctors and their, you know, counterparts from the operating room to play themselves in a movie for like a medical, a surgery scene like this. I wonder how many times it's even been done. Yeah. Also the doctors at NYU Medical Center. Pat yourselves on the back there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Of course. (laughs) Right. So when discussing the impact that this movie had on the public, William Friedkin explained that the intrusion of medical science on the innocence of this young girl in the movie was what was far more disturbing than the presence of the demon itself. Because as we said, the character is 12 years old and they're doing this, she's awake and they're doing this procedure. The Exorcist achieved widespread cultural significance with its considerable box office success, critical acclaim, and the establishment of what would become a very long-lasting media franchise. Additionally, The Exorcist has long been said to be a cursed film. Many unfortunate things actually happened during its production, and that is what has led to its spooky reputation. So some of these things are that there were nine people associated with this film, including actors, a security guard, and a special effects specialist that actually passed away during or shortly after the production of this movie. Actress Ellen Burstyn suffered a lasting spinal injury when she was thrown from a shaking bed with her authentic scream even being featured in the film. I feel like they should have cut that. I agree. Another strange thing was that the set representing the McNeil home at some point during filming was actually engulfed in flames, but the bedroom that was Reagan's bedroom somehow miraculously remained unharmed. I can tell you how that door was closed because they always (laughs) tell you in a fire and I'm always telling my husband, close the doors when you go to sleep. Yeah, for that very reason. Yeah. So the production of the movie encountered so much different misfortune that a priest was actually brought in at some point to bless the set of the Exorcist oh movie, which is just, I don't even know. It's, I, I, where do you go from here? Where do you go from here? Nowhere. Do an ad break, Mandy. <laughs> we Let's are. go to an ad break. <laughs> All right. We will be right back to finish the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. One of my very favorite things in 2023 is how anything can be personalized. Our Christmas sweaters, candles, and even glasses. If you're looking for a great way to show off your personality, check out Pear Eyewear. When I ordered from Pear Eyewear, I chose a base pair of sunglasses in Casper with a crystal clear frame. The frames themselves are more of a classic shape, but the clear color makes them more modern. Then I added a Diet Coke top frame, which is truly the cutest thing ever. I love how easy it is to switch out top frames and of course the amazing options for top frames. 
I wear sunglasses really every day, and sometimes I wear them with the Diet Coke top frame, and other times I don't. Just by adding the top frame, I now have two high-quality pairs of sunglasses all in one, and the combinations are really infinite. And pair eyewear makes such an amazing gift for the holidays. Not only are they stylish and amazing quality, but they're budget-friendly, with base frames starting at just $60 and top frames starting at just $25. Two of my favorites in the holiday collection are the Holiday Stained Glass and the Candy Cane top frames. Super cute, super fun, and super affordable. Make every look merry with Pear Eyewear. Go to PearEyewear.com slash moms for 15% off your first pair. That's Pear, P-A-I-R, Eyewear.com slash moms. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's spooky season, but one thing that doesn't have to be scary is taking charge of your mental health, thanks to BetterHelp. Mandy, do you ever have something on your to-do list, but your brain is more interested in maybe a to-don't list? on more days than you can even imagine. Brains are a weird and wonderful thing, but when your brain feels a little less helpful and a little more like it's on the struggle bus, that can be a great time to turn to therapy. Whether you're having big problems in the here and now or just looking to work through things from the past, BetterHelp counselors are there for you when you need them. Therapy is something I've done multiple times in my life and something I'd encourage others to seek when maybe they aren't feeling like themselves or just needing someone to work through life's challenging times with. I found that just being able to say my problems out loud to a therapist can be extremely beneficial. Plus, BetterHelp is entirely online, so you don't have to worry about travel time to a therapist or even encounter the dreaded waiting room magazines. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were discussing the murder of Addison Verrill and how his murderer, Paul Bateson, somehow was chosen to be a part of the infamous Exorcist movie. So that's how, that's where we are. That's That's how we got here, right? (laughs) (laughs) So following the release of The Exorcist, though, Paul's life really took a downturn. His relationship with his partner came to an end at that point, and his alcohol consumption escalated once again. He said that his social life really hit a low point because of his excessive drinking habits, because as he put it, nobody likes a drunk. Approximately a year later, Paul was terminated from his position as an x-ray technician. He took on various odd jobs after that, such as apartment cleaning and installing lighting fixtures. 
He also worked as a messenger for a liquor store, although we're not exactly sure what that entailed. He also worked briefly at a male porn film and vaudeville theater on Broadway, but his inability to handle tasks effectively led to him being fired. One colleague remembered that Paul was very extra about things. For example, in one incident, he was ushering at the theater when he saw that a customer had removed their shoes and fallen asleep. So he stole the shoes (laughs) and placed them in the office to scare and confuse the customer when they woke up, which sounds like a great time at the theater. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So as Paul's life continued its downward spiral, he made efforts to overcome his alcohol dependency. He did attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and attempted to steer clear of bars. His focus shifted towards finding a meaningful relationship with complete companionship, not just solely focused on sex. By 1977, however, Paul had relapsed into heavy drinking and was consuming at least a quart of vodka a day. After Paul's confession, he was charged with murdering Addison Farrell. He was then taken to the men's house of detention at Rikers Island. During his preliminary trial hearings, Paul pleaded not guilty, stating that his confession had taken place while he was under the influence of alcohol and before he was informed of his rights. He also claimed that he was not the individual who contacted Arthur Bell. Paul claimed that his confession was essentially just copied information from Arthur Bell's Village Voice article. But despite these claims, a judge determined that the police had not done anything wrong or violated Paul's constitutional rights during his arrest. Both his confession and Arthur Bell's article about his confession were admitted as evidence in court. In October, Arthur Bell visited Paul in jail and talked to him for 90 minutes. During this meeting, Paul did not discuss the phone call in which he confessed to the murder. Arthur thought that Paul's attorney may have advised him against discussing the murder and confession, which would make total sense. Like, hey, let's not mention this again. But Arthur inquired about Paul's life story and was able to ask him about his expectations for the case. Paul responded that he anticipated a lengthy jury trial with potential repercussions for his family and friends, but he said that he hoped for an acquittal and he believed that he would be found not guilty and would then have to uproot his life and relocate to start anew somewhere else. The authorities continued working on their case against Paul. They talked to Addison's friend Richard, who had informed Arthur that Paul was the killer. Richard shared to him that Paul had bragged about killing other men besides Addison. Paul reportedly said that killing wasn't hard, but the toughest part was getting rid of the bodies. He claimed to have cut up the victims and placed them in plastic bags for disposal. Because of what Paul supposedly told Richard, the authorities started looking into Paul's involvement in the other murders known as the bag murders or the cuppy murders that Mandy was talking about earlier. It's important to note, however, that Paul was never officially charged with these other murders, However, during his trial for Addison's murder, the prosecution was allowed to mention their belief that Paul might have been responsible for those additional murders as well, which seems wild when you think of all the things you're not allowed to say. And this is yeah. like, by the way, we think he killed like 20 other people. Right. So just keep that in your mind. As I we thought go that was this one. so crazy, too, because even in other cases, you've heard about like this exact specific thing where the defendant is like potentially, you know, guilty of another separate murder. And they're not allowed to mention that in the trial that they're currently in because for reasons. I mean, they do have reasons for that. <laughs> for it, hasn't reasons. Been, yes. it has not been proven that they have anything to do with it. And sure. telling the jury that can absolutely sway their opinion in, in the case that they're supposed to be, um, you know, looking at. So I was very shocked by that, that they were like, 
able to say, like even suggest that he might be a serial killer. Yeah, for sure. That is, that's wild that they were able to get that in for sure. So on March 1st, 1979, Paul's trial for Addison's murder began at the state Supreme Court in Manhattan, and it ended in just four days. The prosecution asserted that Paul was responsible for Addison's murder and the deaths of all six Cuppy murder victims. They presented Paul's confession to the police and Arthur Bell as evidence. Paul's friend Richard testified, confirming that Paul had confessed to him about Addison's murder and also the Cuppy murders. The defense argued that Paul was innocent of all the charges. On March 6th, following a mere 30 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Paul guilty of murdering Addison. His sentencing hearing was on April 6th. The prosecution requested the maximum sentence of 25 years to life, characterizing Paul as what his favorite word is, a psychopath. So the judge ultimately sentenced Paul to 20 years to life, noting that the six other murders could not be clearly linked to Addison's case. And also, he's not even being tried for that. So how can they (laughs) give him a... This is wild. Yeah. In the late 1970s, William Friedkin, who was the director responsible for The Exorcist, wrote and directed another film called Cruising. This movie was adapted from the 1970 novel called Cruising, which centered on an undercover police officer investigating a serial killer who targeted gay men in New York City. While developing the movie's script, Friedkin conducted research by visiting gay bars in the area. He discovered a, quote, surprisingly high incidence of violence against members of the gay community, including murders, most of which received little public attention. This research led him to a police morgue where he observed numerous body parts, and he actually said they were just in bins. That was kind of the way he described it. There were arms, legs, torsos, heads, and they were all labeled as cuppy, meaning they were part of that cuppy murder investigation. Friedkin proceeded to interview approximately a dozen police officers who had at some point worked undercover within the gay community trying to solve these cuppy murders. And what he learned from talking to these investigators was that working on this cuppy investigation was extremely challenging. And the undercover detectives in that unit lasted usually less than a year on average compared to eight or nine years for detectives in other units. Around the same time that Friedkin was developing the script for cruising, Paul Bateson was arrested for the murder of Addison. And when William Friedkin heard about Paul's arrest, he thought that this was a really a significant development. He interviewed Paul while he was in jail and discovered that Paul had been offered a reduced sentence in exchange for admitting to the Cuppy murders. Paul confessed to one particular murder, describing how he dismembered the victim's body and disposed of it in the East River. And he also said that he contemplated confessing to multiple other murders in the hope of receiving a lighter sentence. After interviewing Paul and the detectives handling the Cuppy case, William Friedkin saw the potential for cruising to explore not only the hunt for a serial killer, but also the impact of working undercover in the LGBTQ plus community on investigators. Friedkin aimed to shed light on violence against the gay community through the film, but many activists doubted his intentions, viewing the movie as being a one-sided and misleading portrayal of gay life that could potentially incite violence against gay individuals. Consequently, the movie faced substantial protesting from activists. Nevertheless, the film was produced, with Al Pacino cast as the lead investigator working on the Cuppy murders. 
Cruising was released in 1980, but it received criticism in the press being labeled as homophobic and unfair. On August 25th, 2003, Paul was released from prison. He passed away in 2012. Although some refer to Paul as a serial killer, legally he wasn't. Paul never confessed to the Cuppy murders to the police, and he was not charged with any of those murders. To this day, those cases remain unsolved, and the victims remain unidentified. Paul's involvement in the Cuppy murders does seem unlikely, as those victims were found dismembered in the river, whereas Addison was murdered in his apartment, which is obviously a totally different MO. I mean, I don't, I feel confident in saying I definitely don't think that he's responsible for all those murders. I think very much that he, this was like a passion, like a heat of the moment type of murder. I fully believe that he struggled with alcohol for a very you know, large portion of his life. And I think that what he said happened is what happened. I don't think he was responsible for any of those other murders. Well, I mean, they really couldn't connect him to it. And totally, I mean, yeah, it's just a totally different MO. The cuppy ones were all literally the same. And then this is like, this is a heat of passion, like you were saying. Um, and finally, the, in 2019, the second season of the Netflix series Mindhunter featured the Paul Bateson case, which everyone's mm. waiting for a third season, and they're never going to give it to yeah. us. <laughs> I actually have not watched that one. The second season? I haven't either. I've only watched yeah. No, no, I have watched it. I've waited, but I don't remember this story. I feel yeah. like it's one of those shows that you should pay a lot of attention to. And I don't Yeah, think I it is. Did. That's what – yeah, and sometimes I like shows like that, and then sometimes – you you get how it is. You don't want to actually pay close attention. You just want to yeah. sit there and mindlessly absorb, mm-hmm. yeah, garbage. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was the story for this week. Definitely an interesting one. It's crazy to think that that guy is in The Exorcist, and if you watch that movie, you can see him on yeah, screen. And yeah. And it, and it wasn't like he was an actor. He literally was chosen because of his job to be part of it yeah so it is pretty wild yeah so melissa are you ready to move on to go to last thing before we go for the week if i'm being honest with you no because you told me what it's going to be and i'm scared (laughs) (laughs) but go ahead yeah so okay so the exorcist was actually inspired by a real life case melissa i know i see you over there rolling your eyes i think everybody at home could hear the sound of your eyes rolling to the back (laughs) of your head. So the Exorcist movie was actually inspired by the real-life case of Roland Doe. So this kid... That's not a name. (laughs) Roland Doe? That's... (laughs) Roland. That's a band name, man. Roland Doe. Oh, but in my head, I said Roland Doe. Okay, all right, right, I'll accept it, I'll accept it. So Roland wasn't just your average troublemaker. He was literally levitating and speaking in tongues. So you know things are going south (laughs) when that starts Pretty quickly. Oh, my gosh. So priests, priests, and more priests were brought in to try (laughs) to rid him of his demonic squatters. But the question remains. Did you call them (laughs) demonic squatters? (laughs) Are they froggers? (laughs) Well, the question remains, Melissa. Was it a real possession? Or was it just a severe case of preteen rebellion? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine looking at your 14-year-old right now and thinking, are you demon-possessed? I think that every single day. Well, true, true. But I don't think I'd be able to get priests involved. I'd be like, let's try and figure this out on our own. This is crazy. (laughs) So for last thing before we go, 
I thought I would share a couple of other instances of alleged real life exorcisms. gosh i barely agreed to this actually i didn't agree to this and then i agreed to it just to be a good sport so you're (laughs) welcome everyone listening this is terrible so in 1974 which is around the same time that the exorcism movie was filmed in the united kingdom we find michael taylor an ordinary man who had anything but an ordinary problem michael underwent a traumatic exorcism conducted by (laughs) the local priest and his wife What began as an attempt, Melissa, to cast out evil spirits turned into a very violent and terrifying ordeal. This is a true story, so I don't know why I'm telling it as if I'm excited. You're just all the way. I know. know. So strangely, though, things actually did take a dark turn in this case because shortly after Michael Taylor went through this exorcism, he brutally murdered his wife. And he was shockingly found not guilty by reason of insanity. But of course, it has left people questioning whether all the stuff about being possessed was true. Oh, like the long defense. Yes, yes. But see, in cases like that, you know, it does make you wonder what lengths will people go to to set up their alibi for a horrific crime? Yeah, I would just leave my phone at a different location. That's about as far as I could go. Um, That's crazy (laughs) to fake an exorcism. All right. So, Melissa, the following year, 1975, it seems like a lot of these happened in the, like, early to mid-70s, which, again, makes Mm -hmm. me question if that was just, like, the cool thing at the time. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) But they're happening all over the world. This is like Pokemon Go, but with exorcism. Right. But it's not just in Europe and in the United States. In 1975, in Germany, there was another horrifying tale that unfolded. And this one later served as the inspiration for another famous film, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I'm sure you've heard of. But it was a young, devout Catholic woman named Annalise. And she was believed to be possessed by not one, not two, but several demonic entities. And her ordeal was truly nightmarish. There were reports of her displaying superhuman strength, speaking in eerie voices, and rejecting religious symbols with a supernatural aversion. The situation got so dire, Melissa, that multiple priests were called in to perform a series of exorcisms over several months. Unfortunately, these exorcisms took a tragic turn, and Annalise lost her life in the process which obviously sent shockwaves through the entire community and her priests and parents ended up later being found guilty of negligent homicide because who knows what they were doing in these exorcisms. True story, though. Like, it doesn't sound like these would be true stories, but it's a true story. I'm not – I. But I'm choosing not to believe it. So you got anything else for me? Because I'm these are I'm putting this part in my brain where I like think of scary movies. It's not real. It's not real. Well, just so we can talk about something that's in the not so distant past, Melissa. Dang it. In 2012, the Ammons family from Indiana were living in a house that was allegedly played by spirits. Um, Witnesses reported hearing strange voices, seeing the children levitate. And just you sounded too excited about that. <laughs> just encountering you sound scared. a barrage of paranormal phenomenon. Um, okay. So the uh, local authorities, of course, were very interested. The Catholic Church was called in to perform exorcisms. We don't know if this was just a case of cabin fever in a haunted house, or was it truly? <laughs> no. You know, I'm just laughing because you know I don't believe in like these kinds of things, but you know. Yeah, no, no, I know. 
wild. No, thank yeah. you. I don't like it only happening 11 years ago. Don't anyone get the idea to send us articles on new ones or things that happen in Orlando? Right. None of this is an invitation for that. I right. refuse. I and we survived. Anyway, Melissa and I survived staying in like the most haunted oh, hotel my gosh. in the world. So nothing truly, can happen to us. <laughs> which I'm not entirely sure you didn't do that to us on purpose. I truly did It didn't. sounds like something I you would have done. I feel like it, okay. just, it was fate for us to stay there because the universe knew that I liked that kind of stuff, but it was too scary to actually seek it out. So. <laughs> and what was my reason for being there? Just I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was just stuck. So Mandy, I have watched two scary movies this week. Ooh. Just FYI, both of them Jordan Peele ones. Uh, the first one being Get Out, which I loved Get Out. That, that was one's great. good. I haven't seen, seen that okay. one in a while. That one's pretty good though. Really good. The other one is Us. And that's his other one. And it's like this doppelganger movie where like people live like under the ground and stuff. And I can do an impersonation of the person that talks in it. I don't know if I'm going to, but I can do a really solid one. That is freaky. I did not like that one. I want to watch that. Which one is that? It's um, called What's it on? It's on Netflix. Okay. That one to me was more terrifying and like I couldn't figure out how it worked. The other one... I could like convince myself of it, but this one was just like my daughter and I were like trying to piece together. Like, you just have to watch it. If you watch that one, let us know what you think because I'd yeah, love to know. I know I'm going to probably sit down and watch that one this afternoon. It looks a little cloudy, so I might yeah do a movie afternoon. Oh, nice. Well, if you do, let me know because it's it's really good. If you watch it, let me know. <laughs> and that is uh, a voice that will sound familiar to you in a few minutes. I'm if you already watch scared. It. It's freaked okay. me out, but I'm I was like terrified. very proud of myself. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick before we go, we are working with one of the families that we have an upcoming episode on, Vlada Castle. We're working with his family and we're working to put something together for World Kindness Day. And that is on November 14th. And we're putting together bags to give out to the unhoused members of our local community. And uh, anyway, the bags cost about $16 a piece. They have like two sticks of deodorant in them, granola bars. We've, by we, I mean Haley actually put this all together, like what you can get for $16. And we're gonna be handing those out for World Kindness Day and to spread Vladic's story. So if you want to get involved, we're going to do a giveaway because I don't think we know how to do anything without turning it into a giveaway. Um, we have two of Laura's books lay them to rest really really great so we have two of those to give away so if you make a donation if you wanted to send two dollars five dollars whatever to the link in our show notes i'll have that in there and just label it vladek v-l-a-d-e-k again this will be in the show notes um then that way we know that's what it's going towards and we will enter you for a chance to win a copy of laura norton's book Yes. yes, very exciting. Thank you for your help on that. I Yay. really struggled through the entire thing. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're just doing that for a couple of weeks. So we would love that. Uh, love it if you got involved. We'll have it on social media as well. Perfect. All right, guys, that was the story for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Happy Halloween. Hope everybody has a safe time if you go out and celebrate. And we'll be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.